0: I have been so excited to share this with you this morning. Um, I love this new series we're doing. We started it last week called Remember. Um, If you weren't here, here's why it's called Remember. This is a weird way to think about it, but if if you could cut a finger off of your hand, then we would say that that part of your body has been dismembered, right? And so to pick that part of your body up and to put it back on the body is to remember that part of your body. And so what we're doing in November, we're calling it a November to remember. We're saying, hey, what would happen if we reattached ourselves to two things, to the people of God and the promises of God? I believe that we have an enemy that likes to cut us off. He likes to make us think that we're all by ourselves, we're alone. Even in a room as full as this one, you could be sitting here feeling like you're all by yourself, that's the enemy's tactic. He likes to make us feel like once we're cut off, we're, uh, we're always going to be cut off. And so what we're doing is we're saying, God, we want to remember your people, and we want to remember your promises. And that's kind of how God reattaches us to the body. Make sense? Now, if you were here last week, you were a part of remembering people, right? Um, one, of the th- one of the challenges that we have as a church is we record all the messages, and every now and then you have these, these moments I call them Bethel moments, holy moments, when God just shows up. And sometimes those don't translate well into a video, right? So if you were here last week, you know that we ended the message. We talked about there's a great cloud of witnesses. We talked about how there's a lot of things that we don't like to put in the cloud, right? Because I think if, if I store my photos and my documents in the cloud, will I ever get them back, right? But the good thing about Hebrews 12 is there's this witness, this great cloud of witnesses. And so who are those people in the cloud? They are all the people mentioned in Hebrews 11, all the saints that went before us. And then we realized last week that it's also people that we've known, people that we've known in our lives who have walked with God before us. My brother Stephen is in that cloud. My mom is in that cloud. I've got grandparents in that cloud. And my favorite part of last week, which if you weren't here and you watched the message, you didn't get to see this part, was we lit a candle right here in the middle of this table and we turned the lights off, and that's why it's not on the video because it's just black. And as that candle was being lit, I just stepped back, and I just allowed you all the chance to, to, to holler out names of people that you know in your life that have gone before you, that have walked with Jesus, that have, that have gone on to their promise. And now they're in that great cloud of witnesses. And I don't know if your experience was the same as mine, but this is exactly what I felt. As those names were spoken and as they kind of hung in the air... Even, like, most of the names I don't know, right? Like, some of you might have named out your aunt three times removed or however that works, right? And I wouldn't have known who that person was. But just hearing all of the names being said, there became such a weightiness to it all. Like, I just kept going, man, this cloud is growing and growing and growing, and we're not alone, and none of us are walking by ourselves. And I just felt God just reattaching us to a greater body even than just Albemarle, right? Suddenly you're like, holy cow, this goes on for generations past. We're a part of something way bigger than sometimes we think that we are. And, and that was just last week, right? So like, then I'm like, I can't wait to get to week two because I know what we're talking about today. And today we're going to start talking about reattaching ourselves to the promises of God. So today we're going to talk about one of my favorite stories in Scripture And then next Sunday, we're going to have um, some elders and leaders in our church that are going to stand up here and take some time to share some of their favorite promises that God's given them and how it's worked out in their lives. You know, we're going to wrap it up on the 24th with the lady that's coming from Charlotte that had her arm cut off by a shark, and she's got an amazing testimony about how God has just fulfilled his promises in her life, even in tragedy. But today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Uh, You can turn there. We're going to be reading a story that... You've probably heard, I'm sure, if you were raised in church, and even if you weren't raised in church, I would pretty, I think it's a pretty safe assumption you've probably heard parts of this story, right? So this is a story called The Prodigal Son. It's found in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11. What I'm going to do is kind of get you reacquainted with the story. Is that okay with you guys? We'll just start at verse 11. We'll read a little bit. I'll stop. I'll make some commentary. And then we'll kind of give you some takeaways at the end. So here we go, verse 11. It'll be up on the screen as well if you need it. Here we go. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. So let's just for a second stop there and ask ourselves, why did Jesus tell the story? So when it says to illustrate the point further, this is one of those great times when you can look at the Bible and say, what's the point? I know you've thought that before, but you can say it for real, right? So to get the answer to that, you've got to look back at verse 1. And so verse 1 at the beginning of this chapter you'll find that there's some, there's some squabbling with some religious leaders, and they're asking this question. Why does Jesus hang out with the kind of people he hangs out with? Why is he always associating with sinners and scoundrels? And so Jesus tells three stories in Luke chapter 15. One's about a lost sheep, and one's about a lost coin. And now we're going to get to the story of the prodigal son. So when it says to illustrate the point further, the point that he's illustrating further is that he came to hang around with people that the religious people didn't want to hang around with. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he's telling this story. A man had two sons. and The younger son said to his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, in that culture, it was acceptable but not approved for a son to ask for his inheritance before the father died. And if that happened, the way it would be done was it would be divided, not equally among the sons. So in that culture, this wouldn't have been, well, you get 50% and the older son gets 50%. It would have been a third goes to the younger son and two-thirds goes to the older son. That's just the way the culture was. But for the son to ask his dad, I want my inheritance now before you die, was the same as saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. I wish that you were dead right now so that I could have what I'll have when you die. And so the minute the son asked for that, um, one, the father in his grace gave it. But the minute the son asked for that, he brought shame on himself and shame on his family. 13. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. If you are a King James reader, you have a phrase there. It's something like, not many days hence. We don't use that kind of language anymore. But what King James was saying, what that translation is saying, and mine says a few days later, is this. As soon as possible, he got out of there. You you know why? Well, you already know why. Because you're in a small town. And you know how people gossip. And you know how word travels fast, doesn't it? And so the minute the boy asked for his inheritance and brought shame on his family, you know, in this little Greek, this little Jewish village where he lived, like that word started to spread super fast. So their neighbors knew and their other neighbors and their neighbors' neighbors' neighbors knew and everybody knew. So everywhere he started to walk, people would look at him a certain way because he had brought shame on the family by demanding what he wanted when his dad would die. So, of course... He got out of there as quick as possible because none of us stay in an environment like that. So he took his money, and he got out of there. It says that he went to a distant land. Um, anybody that, um, here that's uh, student age, and you're just like, I can't wait to get out of Albemarle. right? You can relate to this part of the story. Now, you may not be asking your parents, like, I wish you'd drop over dead and give me my money. But you're like, this guy's like, I want to get as far away from my home as possible. And when you're raised in a small town, a lot of times you think to yourself, I mean, I'm happy this is my hometown, but I don't want it to be my town, right? I'm going to get out of here. Yes, I see that hand in the back, right? You're like, yeah, baby, New York City, here we come. So he's like, I'm going to go as far away as I possibly can. Now, in our story, that's much more an indication of his heart than it is that he didn't want to be in a small village. Right? He wants to get as far away as he can from his family, from his father. And so he goes to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. So the Greek word for wasted, let's talk about that. You're like, we're going to talk about being wasted in church. No. So the Greek word for wasted means to scatter seed. Okay? Anybody here grow stuff? Do you plant seeds? Um, if you have a garden, typically, as I've been told, I don't have one, but like you would dig rows, am I right? And then you would take seed and you would plant them, I'm thinking intentionally, in a spot, and then you would cover that up, water it, and eventually stuff would pop out of the ground. Never works for us, but that's the part that's supposed to happen. But what the Greek word for this means, it just means to broadcast seed, so you don't have any plan, you're just throwing stuff out there, and wherever it lands, it lands. It lands. Um, I don't mean to be crude, but I'm going to make sure you understand what this means. In our culture, he was doing this. Right? He was making it rain. He's just throwing money everywhere. He didn't care where it landed. He didn't care what happened with it. He was just spinning as fast as he possibly could. And because of that, he had a whole bunch of friends because that will attract people to you. Verse 14, he'd wasted all the money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. And he began to starve. If we stop there, and I don't know how many times you've heard this story preached. Um, I don't know how many times I've preached it. But if we stop there, I think we can ask a question. Put yourself in the younger son's shoes. You've um, asked for your inheritance. You've shamed your family. You've brought shame on yourself. You've gone to a distant land. You have spent all your money, it's gone. And then there's a famine. And, and now you're starting to get kind of hungry. And I think the obvious question here, if we're, if we're kind of investigating the scriptures, is why didn't he just go home? He's got no, there's no good coming out of where he is. Why not just go back home? And the reason he didn't go back home is because he knew what was waiting for him in the village. Now, I heard this a couple weeks ago. And my jaw just hit the floor because I was like, how many times have I studied this passage? How could I have missed what I'm getting ready to share with you? This was a game changer for me. The reason he didn't want to go home was because in Jewish villages, there was a, there was a tradition, a ceremony, and it was called the kazatsa It's a real word. Let's try to say it together. It's kazatzah. Okay, I'll count to three, and you all say kazatzah. One, two, three. God bless you. Right? So... It's called the Kazatzah, and here's what the Kazatzah was. If a Jewish son wasted and lost his inheritance among the Gentiles, that would bring so much shame on the son and on the family that if that son tried to return to the village, all of the villagers would grab these big pieces of pottery that were stuffed with burnt corn, and they would run out to the village And they would literally, as he's coming to the village, they would throw the pottery down at his feet and it would shatter. And they would begin to shame him publicly. And then he wouldn't be allowed back into the village. I heard that. I was like, wow, how do you miss that? So what I did was I put on my investigative pastor hat and I got on Google, which is what all y'all are going to do when you go home today. You're going to be like, how do you spell Kazatsa?" Figure it out. I know I did. So what I did find was this is legit. This is an actual Jewish ceremony. And there was a a theologian named Kenneth Bailey who lived his entire adult life in the Middle East. And Christianity Today actually says about Kenneth Bailey that he's single-handedly responsible for shedding Jewish light on the parables that we read in Scripture. And so Kenneth Bailey teaches this. He teaches that the reason that this son didn't want to go back was because he knew that if he went back... He was going to be faced with an angry village, breaking pieces of pottery at his feet, shaming him publicly. Basically, what they would do is they would pick up those pieces of broken pottery and they would say to the, to the son, this is your life. This is who you are now. You're a broken piece of pottery. You can't be fixed. You can't be put back together. You're no longer good for anybody. You've made too many mistakes, and you're not welcome here anymore. You've brought shame on your family, and you're not a part of the village. Now, that'll change the way we read this story, won't it? Because now what we see is he didn't want to go home because he knew that's what he was going to go home to. (laughs) Listen, parenting tip. If your kids don't want to come home for Thanksgiving... There could be a reason. When family doesn't want to be with family, it should indicate there might be a reason. And he didn't want to go home and face that kind of shame. The Kazatza literally means the cutting off. It was a ceremony of cutting off a person from the people. We're talking about being the body being dismembered and remembering it and how the enemy wants to cut us off and make us feel like we're alone. That's exactly where this son was. So he, he couldn't go back home. If he was going to go back home, he had to have some kind of an inheritance. He had to somehow earn that inheritance back so that he could be welcomed back into the village. Right? So what does he do? It says that the young man, um, verse 15, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him. I'm going to get a job. And I'm going to work, and I'm going to try to get some of this money back, right? And so he began to feed pigs. Verse 16, the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. You know you're hungry when pig slop is appetizing. But no one gave him anything. Verse 17. Now, I've preached this passage a number of times, and I've preached it the same way every time. When he finally came to his senses, and I have said this before, and you've probably heard this before, that this is when the young man repented. Oh, he finally came to himself. He started thinking properly, and and he saw things clearly, and so he repented, and he he decided he's going to go back and make things right with his dad. But I'll just tell you this. The Greek phrase for when he finally came to his senses, the best way to translate that is this way, in regards to himself. In other words, he's very hungry, he has no money, he's feeding pigs, the stuff he's feeding the pigs looks good, and nobody's giving him any food. And he starts thinking about himself. And he says, I'm going to come up with a plan to get back home. This life isn't working out well for me, and I'm going to come up with a plan to get my life back on track. Does this sound familiar to anybody in the room? who has jacked your life up, and everybody thinks that you're repentant, but you're really just trying to work your way out of your own mess. And that's where this son is. And that's a powerful change to the way that we see the story. So here's what he says. Here's his plan. I'll go home, verse 18, and I will say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. I don't want to be your son anymore. I know I've jacked that up. But if you'll just hire me, I'll work the rest of my life to earn back the money that I lost. Still not necessarily repentant. I want you to see that there's no sorrow here over how he treated the father or even over losing the inheritance. This is how we know. When I was reading these verses, I started asking myself these questions. What if the famine had ended? When it says that he was really hungry and the pig slop looked good, the next sentence says, and no one gave him anything to eat. What if they had? Would he have gone home? I don't think so. Because going home was a last resort. It was like, I'm all out of options. I guess I'll go home. Listen, there's people in, in our society that I'm all out of options. I guess I'll give God a shot. And and listen. God's faith, we'll see that at the end of the story. It's a great story. But here's the thing. We see that, and sometimes what we say is, oh, there's repentance. Actually, sometimes there's just desperation. It's just what I'm doing is not working out. I will come up with a better plan for my life. And that's exactly what he did. We can safely assume that if he had had other options, he probably would have stayed far away from the Father. But he didn't have any more options. So he's, I want you to see this. It sounds harsh of the the son, but he's still working the system. There's still some manipulation, right? He's still trying to come up with his plan. So let's go back to the text. Let's see how this plays out. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Can somebody give God some praise that he doesn't wait until we get close, that he sees us a long way off and he responds, right? He could have just said, well, when you get here, kiss the ring, right? But he didn't, he was watching for him. The father was watching for the son and God's watching for us, I love that. It says that he saw him a long way off, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. Now listen, you might already know this, but in that culture, for, for a grown man to run brought public shame on the man. So the son brought shame on the dad when he asked his dad for the money. And then he went away and shamed the, fa- the family. And now the son's coming home, and the father brings shame on himself by hiking up his robe, which is weird to say about men, isn't it, guys? And he starts running, right? I don't know if anybody ever sung in a choir and wore a choir robe. Can you imagine running, sprinting in a choir robe? It ain't happening, right? Um, I mean, the closest I ever got to dresses was like powder puff, you know. But, like, to, you're running in dresses like this. you gotta, you got to hike that stuff up. Like, you got to pull it up and run. And so in that culture, like, little boys would do it all the time. And, and you know, if you got sons, you know, little boys don't care what you see right? Like they're just like, they would just jack up their little robe and start playing sports. And like, if you could see their SpongeBob, tidy whities who cares, right? They don't care. But for a grown man to do that, to publicly humiliate himself and then run out to greet his son is amazing. It's an amazing picture of God's love for us. But I don't think that's the complete picture. And I think we've romanticized this part in the story. Oh, look how God ran. Oh, he runs after us, y'all. Well, yeah, but is it possible that there's another reason that God, the father, ran? Is it possible that the father that was running knew that Kazaza was waiting for his son? And the father outran the accusers. The father had to get to the edge of the village before they did. So as they're raising up pottery to say to his son, you're not welcome here anymore, the father had to beat them to the son. And he ran faster than the accusers did. We serve a God who outruns even our shame. And when he got to the son, what does it say he did? He, he embraced him and kissed him. Every middle school boy in the room goes, ugh, Right? But he ran to his son, and he embraced the son, and he kissed the son. And I want you to notice something. The manipulative, unrepentant son has not had a chance to say one word. The father was not manipulated by the son's plan. He hasn't said anything yet. Verse 21. Finally, his son says to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The end. Do you notice the part he left out? Hire me as one of your servants. Do you know why? Because Romans 2, 4 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it was the way the father ran to him and outran the shame and outran the accusers and embraced him and kissed him before he could even say a word. Suddenly, that's where repentance took place in the story. The son's like, I don't, I don't have to try to work my way back in here. I'm received back. And because the father received him back, the villagers had nothing to say about it. That is powerful, right? But it still leaves us asking the question, what do we do with it, right? Right? great story, Paul. How do I apply this in my life? So I want to give you a couple takeaways. You'll get more this week. You're going to marinate on this. You're going to Google Kazaza and all that stuff and try to figure out how to spell it. God's going to give you insight and it's going to be awesome. But let me give you a couple of takeaways. Here's the first one. The father dealt with overcoming the power of shame. So I think I need to help you understand the difference between guilt and shame. Okay. Here's why. It sounds like I'm railing our culture. I'm really not. I'm just trying to be the dude that points out the obvious. People in our culture don't like to feel bad, right? I mean, just turn to the person next to you and say, I don't like to feel bad. We don't like to feel bad. We like to feel good. You know, we like to feel up. We like to feel like it's been a good day. Everybody loves Friday. Nobody loves Monday. You know, everybody gets a trophy. We have participation trophies for all the losers, Right. (laughs) It's okay, y'all. I got mostly participation trophies, too. So, but we don't like anybody to feel bad. So if I start to preach this message and you start to feel bad, then we think that's bad. So I want to make sure that you understand the difference between guilt and shame. And I'm going to say something that you don't have to agree with. You'll just be wrong. It's okay, right? Guilt is good. Guilt is is how we feel when we do something wrong. Guilt is action-oriented. If I do something wrong, I feel bad. And that's guilt. And it's a gift from God because it opens our eyes to our need to repent. Shame is about who you are. And that's not from God. Shame is you are bad. Not you did bad. There's a huge difference. And I want you to see in this story that there's a father who outran shame. He overcomes the power of shame. God is bigger than our guilt and our shame. Now listen to this statement. The guilt the son felt from getting it wrong didn't stop the goodness of the father from making it right. I'll say that one more time. The guilt and shame that the son felt for getting it wrong didn't stop the goodness of the father from making it right. You and I are not the main characters in the story. God is. The father is the main character in the story, not the son. As a matter of fact, we would say that it should be called the story of the prodigal father because prodigal means lavish, reckless, right? And the father recklessly loved his son. If you struggle singing that song about the reckless love of God, this is the story it comes from. It's in the Bible. It's okay, right? We just think of God as very controlled, but he's reckless in the way that he loves us. And he's greater than our guilt. He's greater than our shame. And what the son did wrong didn't stop the dad from making it right. Here's your second takeaway. The father was restoring the son's identity. I think it's amazing how much I, at least, am like the prodigal son. I won't speak for you. How much I try to work my way out of my own mess and earn my way back into God's grace. I resonate with this son. When I jack up my own life, and maybe you do this as well, and all I have in response is a plan that I came up with to make it all better. It's amazing how quickly we try to earn something through activity, right? So let's talk just briefly about identity versus activity. Identity versus activity. We tend to find our value in what we do more than in who we are. So activity-based value changes, right? Right? Um, How many of you like to win at everything? Monopoly, cards, soccer, Christmas gift-giving, whatever it is, right? You like to win at everything. So when you do well, don't you feel good about yourself? And when you don't do as well as you could have, you start to feel like you might not be as valuable as you thought you were. Activity-based value changes based on our performance, but identity-based value never changes. You know why? It's based on pedigree. Parker, Will, and Sidney are my kids, our kids. They'll always be our kids. How they act could affect the relationship, but they can't do anything to stop being our kids, right? Or also how I act could affect the relationship, too, if we're being honest, right? But it can't change it. They're our kids. It's pedigree. It's blood. Listen to this statement. If you want to jot this down, this would be going to write down. The enemy's strategy is to wear us down by convincing us to earn through activity what is already ours through identity. I'll say it again. The enemy's strategy is to wear us down by convincing us to earn through activity What is already ours through identity. Here's what that looks like practically. You go through a bad spot in your life. You feel like you've been detached from God. And here's what we typically say to ourselves. I'm going to start praying now. I'm going to go to church every time the doors are open. I'm going to read the Bible. All of it in a week. Right? None of those are bad, y'all. But they're all activity answers to an identity problem. I'm going to do more stuff so I feel better about who I am. No, no. Who you are is what God's after. Who you are drives what you do. Not what you do drives who you are. It's all about identity. And so the enemy would love to have a really tired church. Why am I so tired? Because you're doing a ton of stuff. Why are you doing all that stuff? Well, so I'll be a good Christian. What? I mean, like, kids could never make their beds again the rest of their lives. They're still your kids, right? You can't, you can't earn identity. Identity is given to you. It's given to you. The father received the son based on who the father was, not on what the son hadn't done. And this will change everything. I believe that God's promises are all based in who he is as the giver and who we are as the receivers. I'm making this statement, and you can do all the work in the Bible to back it up. I believe that all of God's promises are based in identity. Like, no, no, that can't be true because like there's some, sometimes he says, like, if you'll pray, then I'll do, and that's an activity. Yeah, but how can, why can you even pray? You can only pray because he's given you access to Jesus as a son or as a daughter. Every promise of God is based in identity. We're the ones that make it about activity because we want to feel good about what we've done. Do you see that in the son? Is it just me? He wants to feel good about having a plan. I I, I worked my way back into God's good graces. We do this all the time. And the enemy knows this. He's always using shame to make us feel like we're unworthy and like we're cut off He has the pottery in his hand, and he's ready to accuse us and shame us. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that the enemy goes before the throne of God day and night to accuse us before God. I think that's so funny. You ever heard Christians talk about how Satan's attacking them? Sometimes I want to look at Christians and go, that is the most prideful statement I've ever heard. You think you're that good that Satan's after you? Satan's at the throne of God, y'all. Day and night, he's accusing the brethren there. Now, he sends people to you, for sure. But I'm not sure I'm on Satan's radar yet, (laughs) like personally. Like, he's not coming after me. Um, I don't know if we would even know what that looks like to live at that place. Jesus did. But Satan, he's in front of the throne of God. Revelation 12.10, day and night accusing the brethren. And what else do we know about Jesus? He sits at the right hand of God. And you know what he does for us? He ever lives to make what? Y'all were like, trouble? <laughs> no, intercession, right? So here's, here's, just kind of give me some liberty, right? I see this happening. At, God's on the throne as the Father, and Jesus is, is at his right hand as the intercessor. And, and as Satan comes before the throne of God, he comes holding broken pieces of pottery. He comes to do the kazatsa on us, to tell God all the reasons why we've squandered the inheritance so we can't come back into the family. And he'll say, Look, 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 you look, look at Paul. He calls himself a pastor. He's a Panthers fan. How can you be a pastor if you like the wolf pack? Did you see how he cut that person off in the aisle in Walmart? Did you, did you see what he, did you, did you read his mind, what he thought? He calls himself a Christian. How can he be a Christian? And I believe that as Satan, as Satan comes to the throne to accuse me before God, I believe that, that the intercessor He outruns shame, and he jumps up, and he's like, no, God, God, Father, Father, no, no, look at me, look at me, not Paul, don't look at Paul, it's me, look at me, no, 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 I covered that, I covered that, no, he's mine, don't look at him, don't listen to him. And he covers us. See, we want to talk about how beautiful it is that the father ran to the edge, and he knelt down, and he embraced his son, and he kissed him, and all of us are like, ew. He wasn't just kissing the sun, y'all. He was shielding the sun from the kazatsa, from the pottery that could have broken, shattered. Yeah. Do you know that Deuteronomy says, even if there wasn't a kazatsa, you know what they were supposed to do to that son? Stone him. Some of y'all are teenage parents, parent. You're like, yeah, we should live that one out. Like the Bible said, if they were rebellious children, that they were supposed to be stoned. So whether it's broken pieces of pottery or it's stones, something's coming at this kid. And the father ran to beat the accusers there. And Jesus does the same thing for us. And I want you to attach yourself to that promise today. You are probably sitting here feeling guilty about things you've done. And you should. I do too. But you should never sit here as a child of God and feel shame about who you are. And this morning, I've asked Phil and Jen to just to sing for you a song that we've, we've been introduced to in the last month or so. Just such a powerful song. Appropriately called Remember just talking about the God that we serve. And I want you to respond to him just where you are. Just respond to him. If you want to come to the altar, you can do that. You can sit where you are, stand, however you want to do it. But this is your time to, to respond to a father who is literally outrunning shame in your life. There is no more kazatza for the children of God because he's outrun the accusers, and he outruns the accuser, and he's shielding you this morning, and I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to that kind of grace.
1: How quickly we forget the God who lives in every day. How easy to lose sight that you reside in the mundane How quickly we forget the power that's running through our veins The kind of power that empties grace And oh my soul That bows to that's the God who was with you and oh my soul you know that if he That he's finished yeah. Lest we not forget The voice that's holding back The waves. It was once a voice that told The skies to pour them Into place Let us join the endless Song of everlasting Praise The only God who Empties grace. Oh my soul, remember who you're, you're talking to the only one, one who death mouse you that's the God, God who walks with you. you. And oh, His power can can still raise raise the dead. Don't tell me that he's finished. And it's still on its face Then the power that raised you Is about to move again If you broke through the oceans You can break through these chains If your word made the mountains It can move them all the same If death fell before you And it's still on its face Then the power that raised you Is about to move again Is about to move again And oh my soul Remember who you're talking to The only one who's about to
0: a god who walks
1: with you and don't tell me that he's finished yet. Cause His power can still raise the dead. So don't tell me that he's finished
0: Alright. Let's do some work with shame, can we? Shame is one of those things that is crippling and it is all up in the church and it has no business here at all and so I'm just going to ask you a very simple question if you are here this morning and you know that the power of shame needs to be broken off of your life I'm just going to ask you to stand we're going to pray over you now while you're standing I'm going to make the pitch one more time I applaud your courage by the way Here's how you know that shame is a problem. We actually feel shame about our shame. That's how we know there's a problem. And, and I am just done with it. You know, like if, if I could MMA style wrestle shame to the ground and kick it to the curb, I would do that. I'm just so done with how the enemy uses shame to cripple the children of God. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to, we we can't really bring robes around to you, but we want to cover you this morning. If anybody else wants to stand before we take the next step forward, I I want to invite you to do that. Like there's no room here to feel ashamed about being shamed. Like you're in good company, right? We're all standing at the edge of the village and the father is outrunning all of our accusers to get to us, right? This is a good day to kick shame. Back to hell where it came from. Now, church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find people that are standing, and I want you to put your hand, I want you to be the robe. I want you to be the cloak. I want you to be the ring, and I want you to put your hand on their shoulder, and we're going to pray. We're going to pray against shame in their lives, and we're going to tear it down. Listen, it's not going to make you feel less bad because guilt doesn't feel good but guilt is what we repent of shame is what we move away from right and there's no room in the kingdom of God for shame and there's no room in this church for it and so this morning we're going to just pray over you that God would fill you with courage and give you peace you know this son that came home How many times did he think, if I could just go back and relive my life, I would never do what I did. Yeah, that's true. And that's called regret. And but the beautiful thing is that God comes in as the Father, and when he covers us, regret becomes like shrapnel from the pottery, doesn't it? It sticks up in our mind and makes us it hurts. And he's shielding us from that. You can't go back, but you can go forward. And that's what the gospel's all about. Jesus took care of the past. We can't. And he gives us a future. We can walk towards that. And so I'm praying that over you right now. And as I pray, here's what you're gonna feel on the inside of you that hope is gonna begin to rise up. That hope's gonna begin to rise up. That son never felt worthy of his father's kisses, but it changed everything. That's where repentance came from. And I'm praying that for you right now. So, Father, in your name, Jesus, here's what we know. Who you are is way bigger than who we are. The great I am is greater than whatever I think I am. And we invite you right now, Father, step into this moment with all of who you are with all of your identity as the great I am and be greater than whatever those of us that have stood think we are. We stand in who you say that we are. Shame, you have no place in our lives. You are a tactic of an enemy who was soundly defeated. Colossians says that Jesus made a public, public spectacle of Satan at the cross. You dealt with shame there so that we could live without it here. And so in your name, Jesus, right now, we pray that freedom over our friends that have stood. I pray that they would sense right now in their spirit, you just putting a robe on them. You're covering them. That ring, God, what a symbol of of authority. You're restoring authority to them. And God, there is a fatted calf. There is a party waiting to happen, God. And it's based in who you are towards us. And we receive that right now. We are sons and daughters of the best father this world has ever known. We are sons and daughters of a father who outran our shame, who outruns daily our accuser at the throne. You cover us, and we can stand with hope because of that. We confess that the past is done with, but we are moving from this point forward, God, into a future that you have secured for us and that you have invited us to. We thank you, Lord, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Can you give a big group hug to the people that you were praying with? And can we give God a big clap of praise and just tell him thank you for being the kind of God who would outrun shame in our lives? And he's
1: so good. He's so, so good.